Hello and welcome to SequelCast 2, a podcast looking at films in a franchise, one movie at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is Thrasher. That's right, the man of the hour, the tower of power. Too sweet to be sour, I am back on the show, drink in hand. What's your libation of choice? Oh, well, this this is something that I've just invented. Uh, I'm going to call it the Ginger Snap uh, Mark II, as opposed to the previous drink I invented called the Ginger Snap, which will now be Ginger Snap. Uh, Snap Mark 1. This is a non-alcoholic ginger beer made from cane sugar uh, and raw ginger that has been mixed with about two and a half fingers of vodka. Very, very nice. Uh, Nice, refreshing drink to have in the morning when you're a writer like me who needs constant alcohol. Right. Um, Yeah, Hemingway also enjoyed his alcohol. You know, myself, I'm having a... uh... A hot coffee, and I mixed in, oh, you know, probably half a shot of coconut rum and half a shot of Kahlua. And that sounds good. I gotta try that with some Kahlua and coconut rum. When you first said hot nice. coffee, I thought you were enjoying the activity from Grand Theft Auto Three. Was that the one? Was it a, a blowjob in the car? Was he having anal sex with a girl in his bedroom? I don't remember. It, I, I believe it was in a, like a bedroom or a trailer or something like that. Oh, in a trailer. It has to keep it classy for Grand Theft Auto, San Andreas. Um, <laughs> right, yeah, but anyway, what we're talking about here is uh, Scooby-Doo, the live-action film from 2002, directed by Roger Gosnell, produced by Charles Roven, Richard Suckle, screenplay by James Gunn, who's better known now for writing and directing the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy movies, based on a story by James Gunn and Greg Titley. Based on the cartoon Scooby-Doo by Joe Ruby and Ken Spears, uh, of course, which was a Hanna-Barbera cartoon, um, starring Freddie Prince Jr., Sarah Michelle Gellar, Matthew Lilliard, Linda Cardellini, and Rowan Atkinson, with music by David Newman, cinematography by David Egby, edited by Kent Beta, um, off a, uh, according to Box Office Mojo, off a budget of $84 million, this made $275 million worldwide, so about made three times its money back, not including marketing and so forth. Wow. So um, that, that answers the question as to why they made a sequel to this. But yeah, this is called Scooby-Doo. I, I see uh, one of the posters. It says, Be Afraid, Be Kind of Afraid, which is a, a takeoff on The Fly, uh, <laughs> 80s remake, Be Afraid, Be Very Afraid. What's so funny, because all of the advertising leading up to this movie w- were all sorts of horror and blockbuster references, none of which are actually part of the movie. Do you remember the trailer for this film? I don't. Yeah, the, the trailer, it was all like shots of like horrifying buildings and cemeteries and there was lightning flashes and it was all about, you know, the world is in crisis. The world needs a hero. Someone who can stand. It's like, it's like talking it up. It's like, and there's only one man. And the lightning flashes and you see the silhouette of Batman. But then the lights come on, and it's Scooby-Doo with his ears okay. pricked up, creating a Batman silhouette. It's like, who? Me? <laughs> and I remember at one point seeing that in the theater and people thinking it was a trailer for a Batman movie and going fucking nuts. And then when they saw that it was Scooby-Doo, there was an immediate divide in the audience between people who were pissed off and people who were delighted. 
Yeah, that reminds me of sort of they overdid it in the same way for a lot of the previews for the uh, that Muppet movie that came out a few years ago just called The Muppets, mm. um, which we covered on the old show. And uh, let's see. Looking up something here for for research. Here we go. Um, see, I do my research before the episode. I call it pre-search. If only we did more pre-search. It's up <laughs> in the bedroom. Um, yeah. So this film, Scooby-Doo, I saw in the theater. I saw it with my um, ex-girlfriend at the time and her boyfriend. And I was trying to get back together with her and failing. So instead I ended up dating her friend, as um, as tends to happen with summer uh. The, the days of my youth, like the scent of fresh lemon. Yeah, so I went into this movie. Um, what really made me interested to see it in the theater at the time is that it had Rowan Atkinson. Yeah! Who, who I was a big fan of from uh, Mr. Bean. And for him to show up in an American Hollywood film is pretty unusual. I, I don't really think he's he's done it much since, with the exception of... You know, he has, like, bit parts in Four Weddings and a Funeral and... Um, uh, oh, Love Actually. Well, that well, was a British production. Well, you know what I think it is? I think they tried to get Tim Curry, didn't, and then ended up getting Rowan Atkinson. That's what this feels like. Oh, very interesting. Right, because Tim Curry did Charlie's Angels, which was maybe a few years before this one. And um, they wasted him. Yes, and Rowan Atkinson, um, I recall uh, an interview with James Gunn, who's the main credited writer on this one, mentioning that Rowan Atkinson really didn't want to do this movie, and James Gunn had to have several one-on-one script meetings with Rowan Atkinson explaining every single motivation of his part. And and you might hear that, you might think, oh, Rowan Atkinson's an asshole, but really Rowan Atkinson is uh, meticulous and usually writes his own material and produces his own material. Uh, You know, anything from Mr. Bean to Black Adder to, um, you know, I'm sure... Did he do stand-up in England? I mean, he's done so many things over the years. Well, I he's done lots of different, like, uh, shows. Uh, there's there's right, a great, like, so. one-man show comedy special where it's him doing pantomime and a friend of his doing, like, narration and vocals. Yeah, I mean, so so he's tremendously meticulous, you know, probably in some of the same ways I've heard about Mike Myers mm-hmm. in that he's very picky in what he does. And um, I I think, unfortunately, he's a bit, until the very end, he's just sort of, dry and he's not given a lot to work with um but he's underused this whole movie feels like a rough cut i feel like it, it it's a movie that feels like there's a lot of deleted scenes it also feels like it's like the second movie in a trilogy but the first one never came out and <laughs> and, and I'll, I'll get into that with the intro but um i want to give a quick overview of the plot then we'll discuss the cast and then go into the movie as we do here on sequel cast two also, I, I forgot to mention, a Sequel Cast 2 is on Stitcher. Listen to us on Stitcher at stitcher.com to search Sequel Cast 2. Leave us a review on iTunes. Um, we recently migrated from Libsyn to Podbean, so our website now is sequelcast2.podbean.com. Your, um, your RSS feeds uh, for the show should have updated automatically, but if not, you might just need to go into iTunes or wherever you get your stuff, search Sequel Cast 2, and resubscribe to it. Uh, apologies for that inconvenience, but we'll, um, because of Podbean in the future, we'll be doing things like selling classic episodes of SequelCast. You can get as digital downloads, so that'll be exciting. And um, where was I going? Oh, yeah, so overall, the plot <laughs> of Scooby-Doo, it, it starts sort of like at the end of, of a mystery about the Luna Ghost, but the main thing is uh, the... Um, 
the Mysteries Incorporated the mystery, team breaks up after yeah, a falling they, it breaks out after up. a mission. Uh, That's right. They're and, on the rocks, and they learn about Spooky Island. They get they each get all expense paid uh, trips with uh, all you can eat food is a thing to get Shaggy to come uh, to Spooky Island, and they all meet up at the airport, and they're like, "Huh, I guess we," you know, and they sort of half-ass uh, get together. Or they all want to kind of do their own thing. They want to prove they're the real brains behind the operation. No, the thing I like about them all meeting up at the same airport, that implies that they all live in the same city and have been managed to avoid each other for two years. I never thought that, but you're right. Um, so they, they go to Spooky Island. They find out uh, it's owned by Emil Mondavarius, which is a great name. And he's played by Rowan Atkinson, and he tells them, you know, oh, there's... Oh, I think that Spooky Island might be haunted. Oh, really? Because the name? Uh, in Spooky Island, it, it looks like a kind of, you know, uh, haunted mansion section of Disney World, but more with like a tiki theme. Yeah, it's like a vaguely haunted tiki shack themed uh, resort. <laughs> Although you have a castle in there that looks more medieval, like out of a Hammer Horror picture, but um, I, I, I digress. So, you know, they go around and there, there's some red herrings as to who the uh, who the bad guys are. Although, in some ways, all the red herrings are correct, in a way. Um, well, yeah, it turns out all the people they suspect, except one, are still working for the main bad guy. <laughs> right, they're in on it. They're not the, the big bad, as Joss Whedon might say. Now, but, speaking um, of which, should we should we hold the reveal for the big bad later, or just want to let it all hang out? We'll hold the reveal till later when we get into the in-depth discussion of the film, but um, that's a great point. So, you know, they you find out who's in charge of everything, uh shenanigans ensue there's fight scenes there's action sequences and um and at the end they um they solve the case i don't that's not really spoiling anything <laughs> and it, it ends with sort of a tag to get them to to do another mystery I, I think about a london ghost or something yeah they're like the the the, the fog bog monster in london i think is the way they refer to it mm-hmm. and um and yeah that, that's the plot let's let's talk about the cast because i am Somewhat, I'm not thrilled about the cast in this movie, although I think some of them do okay. I, I'm going to disagree. This cast is an embarrassment of rich, riches. However, they're not used nearly as well as they could be. That's, yeah, that's fair. Um, as the voice of Scooby-Doo, we have Neil Fanning, who's an Australian... Um, He's a, stu- he's, he's a stunt, stunt man and, and comic actor who I think at the time was most well known in Australia for appearing in a, a stunt show in an, in an Australian amusement park based on the Police Academy movies. I'm assuming he did the mocap for Scooby Doo. Um, I don't. I look at that and I don't think that's mocap. I think I think that was all done by the animators. I don't think there's any mocap on Scooby Doo. Okay. Uh, regardless, I think Neil Fanning's voice sounds. It's a pretty good Scooby-Doo. I'm it's gonna, not... I, right off the bat, I'm going to disagree with you. Okay, it's, so what what is off about a Scooby-Doo? I'm okay. not as much into the cartoons well, as you are. It's it's a... I don't, I don't consider it a very good Scooby-Doo voice. I do consider it a very good Scooby-Doo impression. But, like, it, it the, throughout the whole movie, it sounds like somebody doing an impression of Scooby-Doo, not as Scooby-Doo actually speaking. And uh, Scooby-Doo, the voice for Scooby-Doo was originated by uh, the classic animation voice actor Don Messick, who's all over uh, uh, Hanna-Barbera Productions. Now, he died in uh, 1997, uh, I believe, and 
when when he died within within uh, sort of the world of Hanna Barbera, uh, Frank Welker, the voice actor, inherited the role of Scooby Doo from him. He's also the original voice of Freddy in the Scooby Doo cartoons. And mm-hmm. I and he pretty much has been doing Scooby Doo to this day. It kind of boggles my mind that in a Scooby Doo movie where Scooby Doo's a live action Scooby Doo movie where Scooby's going to be animated anyway, why don't you get the official voice of Scooby Doo, Frank Welker? That boggles my mind. And it's not like they used a celebrity as the voice of Scooby Doo, right? Well, well, more than that, Frank Welker does voice work in this movie, but he doesn't do the voice of Scooby Doo. Hmm. Um. You know, one of the you mentioned a lot of the cast was wasted, but I'll disagree with you about Matthew Lillard as um, why do I say Lillard? It's Lillard as Shaggy. I think he's excellent. He in fact has replaced Casey Kasem as no. Shaggy. Oh, he's amazing in, in, in a lot I... of the uh, direct-to-video um, and TV series of Scooby-Doo they've done since this movie. Oh, he's so good. I am so happy that he is the new that he's like it's like since this movie. He's that's it. He's been shaggy. I and he's so good. He lives the part. Uh, what's interesting, according to Wikipedia, is both Jim Carrey and Mike Myers expressed interest in playing Shaggy. Well, this um, movie... Jim Carrey, I don't think they could have afforded. Well, this movie was in development for ages. I mean, my, oh, Mike it? Myers was attached to this movie back when he was still on SNL. I see. Okay, that makes a bit more sense then. So yeah, by the time this movie actually got greenlit, both Mike Myers, uh, thanks to Austin Powers and Jim Carrey, thanks to everything he had been in at that point, uh, were way were way too big. I mean, the era where they could have done that had long passed. Do you think that uh, did Jim Carrey ever do Shaggy like in a Scooby Doo sketch for um, In Living Color? I don't believe they ever did a Scooby Doo sketch. Okay, I was just wondering, but um, Jim Carrey, you know, uh, his early act was a lot of impressions, and I wonder if he ever did Shaggy maybe in one of those stand-up acts. We might have to do some research on that or some pre-search for next week, right? And uh, Freddie Prince Jr. as Fred is uh, horrendous. I don't think, I think as an actor in general, he's bland. Um, I didn't like him in the lead in Wing Commander. <laughs> I, I, I didn't like him in a lot of those romantic comedies he did, or he did that baseball movie also with Matthew Lillard. I mean, they happened to show up in a lot of movies because they were sort of the, I hate to say Brat Pack because they didn't have as many scandals really. But, oh, yeah. Um, it was sort of the 90s uh, teen heartthrob stuff, right? Matthew Lillard and Freddie Prince Jr. happened to be in a lot of stuff, and and. In this film, as you know, by the time they did this film, I believe Freddie Prince Jr. is married to Sarah Michelle Gellar. I uh, know they married uh, after the film, but yeah, they. they I see, but they, they were dating for a while. And um, as Fred, the wig doesn't look good on him, and um, he's not bland enough. I don't know. He's trying to do like this bro, like I'm so cool and vain thing, and it it just it's it's bad casting. I I don't like. Freddie Prince Jr. I, I, I don't disagree. Like him I think he's good for the part. I think I think the problem is is somewhat the script and somewhat the direction. Freddie is when it comes down to it. Freddie is kind of just a generic, good-looking hero who keeps the team mm-hmm. together. But rather than letting him play that, they keep trying to give him this sort of narcissism that I don't think works for the character, and 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 that really breaks it down. I mean, even then, in Sco- in, in the Scooby Doo various animated series. Freddy doesn't really get a personality until the second to most recent series, Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated, which came out, I think, in 2009 or, or, or uh, some such. That sounds about right. Um, Sarah Michelle Gellar's Daphne 
And they have her do a lot of karate stuff in this, and that just reminds me of her stuff on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Well, it's, it's almost it's almost cheating to use her because she she played a parody of the Scooby Gang on uh, on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Now she's officially in the Scooby Gang. I think she did a really good job. I like the idea that her part of her character arc is she got tired of being kidnapped, so she became really big on on self defense. I just wish that played a bigger role in the movie. The fact that she studied martial arts doesn't have any bearing on the film until the until the climax. Right, which is a fun little fight scene, but it, it kind of comes out of nowhere. Um, this movie came out sort of in between season six and season seven of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So she was still doing that as her main gig. Uh, and Linda uh, Cardellini. Oh, she's excellent as, as Velma. Oh, yeah. She is... Um, at that time, you know, it was probably best known from, for Freaks and Geeks, which was a cult uh, TV comedy slash drama, probably more of a drama than a comedy in some ways, that starred such people as like James Franco and Seth Rogen and all that. Um, it, that was a, a cult, critically acclaimed, but, you know, um, not very successful show in, in the terms that it was canceled after one season. One of those gone too soon shows. And uh, as Velma, she just nails it just with the look, with the glasses. Uh, her voice, I think, is good. Her um, the the things they give her character to do in this, I think, are pretty good. And that they give her a love interest is is cute. I like it. It's 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 a ta- it's a tacked on love interest, and yet I like I like seeing her having a romantic connection with another character because I I don't I guess I can only really speak for myself. I have a long history with with Scooby Doo. Uh, Velma was the character that I had a crush on. Uh, when I was oh, really? a kid. Hmm. And, and your she wife also has glasses, went on to have a stronger connection with Scooby-Doo. Uh, she's the voice of Hot Dog Water on Mystery Incorporated. Who's Hot Dog Water? Oh, Hot Dog Water uh, is a character that's introduced in that series. The short version is she's, she's, a, she's a, a very smart, kind of nerdy girl like Velma, but she's very introverted. She's the daughter of one of the crooked land developers who dresses up like a monster. But she ends up becoming kind of an auxiliary member of the Mystery Incorporated team. And one of the things I like about the second season of Mystery Incorporated, uh, they they imply that she has uh, a lesbian attraction uh, to to Velma. And it's not used as a joke. It's like a little character. It's just like a regular character trait of hers. Oh, that's nice. Um, Rowan Atkinson is Emil Mondavarius. He's a treat, but he doesn't get enough screen time. It doesn't get enough screen time, and he, he's really toned down. I'm really sort of surprised. He plays it so straight. If you didn't know Rowan Atkinson was a comedian, you might not get it from his performance in this movie. Now, the only time he really cuts loose is in his introduction when he's doing the voice for that fake tiki idol with the flailing arms. And I, I think at the end where he looks a bit shaggy, pardon the pun, um, he has some, some humor there as well. But yeah, he's he sort of fades into the background, which is the opposite of what I was expecting. Like, he almost plays the part too smart for for the movie that we get. Uh, Isla Phil Fisher as Mary Jane, Shaggy's <laughs> love interest, is is cute. It's a nice beat. Like, uh, when she introduces herself, she says, I'm Mary Jane, and Shaggy, like, whoa, that's my favorite name, man. One of the many pot jokes in the film. And, and yet, I feel like there's not nearly enough. Um, we'll get into that when we talk about the, the script, but yep. Um, Scott Eines does the voice of Scrappy-Doo. Normally he does the voice of Scooby-Doo in the more recent cartoons. And, um, 
his Scrappy Doo sounds like I remember the '80s Scrappy Doo sounding like. Yeah, he does. He does a pretty good. He does a a, a pretty good voice. Uh, and yet, I think the original voice of Scrappy Doo was. Oh yeah, uh, Lenny Weintraub was the original voice of Scrappy Doo. He was still alive and still acting at the time. Odd, 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 odd. Um, you know, Miguel Nunez is Voodoo Maestro, sort of one of the the suspects. I think. Um, yeah. Or maybe, and when I looked at the actor, for some reason, uh, originally I thought it was he Hank Azaria. Just... Oh, pardon? I thought it was Hank Azaria. You thought it was Hank Azaria as the voodoo guy? For some reason, I think the eyebrows, something with the face, like it looked sort of familiar, but I couldn't place who it was. Well, it looked like they wanted Tim Meadows for the part. I could see that, yeah. Oh, never mind. I'm thinking of a different character. I'm sorry. I'm thinking of the bald, uh, tattooed guy. Okay, yeah, that does look like a character that Hank Azaria could have played. I'm sorry. Yeah, not not the not Voodoo Maestro, who's a African American. Um, yeah, you're talking. You're talking about uh, uh, Sam uh, Greco as Zarkos. That is right. Yes, Sam Greco, of course. And uh, yeah, so I mean that's. That's pretty much the cast. Uh, you have a cameo from Pamela Anderson. You have a cameo from uh, Sugar Ray. Yeah, Sugar Ray as themselves. Oh boy. And um, so we went over, you know, loosely the plot. We went over the characters. Now let's go over the movie in detail. We're going to take a deep dive on Scooby Scooby Doo. Where are you? We even talk about Melvin Doo, which is a, a joke I enjoyed. Um, so yeah, this this screenplay for Scooby Doo was kind of compromised. Initially, it you know, they couldn't decide in what tone to take, and I think that's evident in the film. Oh, yeah. Um, there was more pot humor. Uh, you mentioned a, a lesbian thing from a more recent series. They actually filmed a scene on purpose with um, Velma and uh, Daphne making out. Really? That was explicit for the sole purpose of them sneaking more pot scenes into the movie, because they knew when the censors saw the lesbian making out scene, that would be all they'd talk about, and they'd ignore all the other jokes. Oh, wow. And, and I've heard that as a tactic, that that that, that, uh, that, fil- that filmmakers will put in a scene so over the top that they have no intention of using just to throw the censors off. My favorite censorship story was from one of my professors in college who... Um, knew the sound editor on the John Woo film Broken Arrow. That's mm-hmm. the one with John Travolta and Christian Slater. Initially, it got a rated R, and instead of making a cut to the film, um, they John Woo's, the, the sound editor piped up and said, hey, you know, I think I, I can get this fixed. They didn't cut a frame of footage from the R-rated cut. Instead, he made the bone-crunching sound effects less intense. And it got a PG-13 cut, and the censors were like, oh, it's much less violent now. (laughs) When it was just the, you know, the sound design fooled them into thinking it was a more violent picture. Oh, man. So there you go. That's an MPAA for you. Um, But yeah, Scooby-Doo, this this film is rated... I can't see, is it PG? Probably. Uh, Yeah, this this was... You know, I... Now that I look at it, I'm not seeing anything in my notes about what it was rated. I, I'm going to look that up. But, PG. but, you know, they the thing about Scooby-Doo is it's been around for, for generations at this point, right? So, yeah, I mean, the, the original Scooby-Doo aired in uh, 1969. 1969, dude. Uh, yeah. Um, 
So it's, yeah, PG for rude humor, language, and some scary action. Scary action. The director of this, Roger Gosnell, um, started his career with Home Alone 3 and has has done, you know, uh, did both of the live-action Smurf movies. So welcome back to the sequel cast, Roger. Right, did uh, Beverly Hills uh, Chihuahua, but got his start as an editor on such films as Robert Altman's Popeye, Pretty Woman, and Teen Wolf 2. So... Oh, and Mrs. Doubtfire, wow. Yeah, a lot lot of stuff for Chris Columbus, and, you know, then he took over the reins for Home Alone 3. And and I gotta say, all of those movies, uh, despite their their faults, are very well edited. I wish more of that editing talent had been applied to this movie. The editing in this film feels very sloppy to me. It does, and I think, you know, um, so the beginning of the film, it's... It sort of begins where a typical episode would end, where they realize there's a ghost. In this case, it's the Luna ghost at the Wow Wow Toy Factory. And the, um... They set up so an you, elaborate trap to catch the ghost, but of course Shaggy and Scooby mess the whole thing up. What I like, though, is we get some wide-profile shots of Scooby and Shaggy running in place, like what you see in the cartoon. I, I think tonally, that opening sequence... Uh, might be the best thing in the movie, and it feels it reminds me the most of the old cartoon. Well, like it's it's wall to wall a love letter of the original cartoon. That's right. It's not trying to be clever and have all this meta dialogue. Oh, aren't these characters precocious? Yeah, the the it, only the only real and I won't say fault, but the only real like modern touch it has is when Scooby and Shaggy are on each other's shoulders running from the ghost and they slip and land on a skateboard and end up accidentally doing all these complicated skateboard tricks on toy factory equipment. They're on the skateboards because, you know, this was made in the early 2000s, which still carried stuff over from the 90s. That's why you have the skateboard. Well, back in the um, original show, they would accidentally step into a discarded roller skate, but they would just end up crashing through some crates. Sure. Uh, so Scooby-Doo is CG in the film. And I think... Um, this film is almost 15 years old, and he the has CG not aged well. does not age well. I think part of the problem is you're animating a dog. A dog has fur. Fur texture is quite difficult to do, and you can get that uncanny valley, um, which is what the CG in this has. The other CG stuff in the movie, it just doesn't look detailed enough. It's not enough. Um, it doesn't react appropriately with the lighting. There's not enough detailed texture. Yeah, I find Scooby Doo a bit scary looking in this film, really. Um, and actually, two two comments on on that. Uh, so in the last film series we did, we 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 talked a lot about kind of comparing the CGI in that film series to the CGI in uh, Jurassic Park. So the Scooby Doo movie came out in two thousand two. What came out in two thousand one? Lord of the Rings: Lord, The Fellowship Lord of the Rings. Of the Rings. Yeah. Uh, in, in which motion capture CGI was brought to a high art form by Andy Serkis and uh, Peter Jackson's special effects crew with Gollum. But and was Gollum that, in... I don't think Gollum was in Fellowship, was he? Just for a few seconds? He... He... Yeah, he was, he was, in, he was in Briefly. You're right. Okay. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't protracted. But Two Towers still came out in 2002. No, exactly. Right. Like, yeah. it was... This this stuff had been figured out, and and, mm-hmm. it, and it's so disappointing to see that a movie that came out the same year was so many light years ahead of this film. Also, I mean, Scooby Doo even looks worse than Jar Jar Binks. Well, uh, um, and about and about that, 
Oh, yeah. Even, yeah, I will agree with you there. Jar Jar Binks is a better CGI character than Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo's design looks so compromised. Uh, yeah, the, he, he's not as dark as the dog is in well, the show. Well, beyond, beyond that, uh, so uh, back back when, when we attended college, uh, which we did, in fact, attend, and I have the documents to prove it, um, there, uh, there was a, a lecture I attended uh, which was... Uh, done by the former head of ILM and he told oh, okay. all these stories uh, he essentially told a story explaining how bad Scooby-Doo looked uh, <laughs> not not so the, ILM didn't work on Scooby-Doo right no no they didn't work on Scooby-Doo okay. but what he talked about is that anytime there was a film in development with a CG, with a live action film with a CGI animal character that there are all there are always two competing design philosophies coming at you from the producers, uh, okay. and one group always wants it to look as cartoony uh, and bouncy, and in some cases true to the source material as possible, and the other team wants a producers wants it to look as much like a real animal as possible, mm. and you end up having to compromise between those two points, and you always get a monster. Uh, and that's what the problem with the Scooby-Doo is. He has the outline, profile, and mannerisms of a cartoon dog, but they're trying to make a realistically proportioned cartoon or a realistically proportioned Great Dane skeleton accomplish those impossible feats, and it makes him look like an animatronic wearing a dog skin, and it is grotesque. The grotesqueness of Scooby-Doo reminds me of the um, similarly horrific CG. In the two thousand six live two thousand six live action Charlotte's Web, ooh, I, I, you know, I haven't seen that. I love the Charlotte's Web story. Now I'm glad I stayed away from the film. I will send you a picture here on Skype of the spider in Charlotte's Web because it looks like a spider that will eat you alive. It's horrend- It's terrifying. It's more terrifying than Shalove in Return ooh. of the King. That's no mean feat, but yet, no, I, I, um, and I think the worst, the no. worst thing about this Scooby-Doo character, despite the crazy animation and the grotesquery of it, really is the eyes. The eyes look so hideous and lifeless. I will say, even though I don't like the character design of this, and I don't like the character design of the monsters, which look like kind of like dog rabbit pink hybrids. Do you know what they look like? They look exactly uh, like the minions in the Overlord game series for the uh, Xbox 360. Oh, when you said minions, I was thinking of the uh, Despicable Me stuff. But no, no. But so like, I just com- compare yeah. the compare the two. They are almost okay. identical in every way. All right. Um, yeah, those are fun games. I haven't thought about those in a while. So um, I just sent you a picture of what the the spider looks like in the Charlotte's Web live action film. Yeah, I am gonna go ahead and open that picture so my response will be genuine and spontaneous right so let's see what we got doing my whole cyberpunk bit trying to get this to load up moving some windows oh my god isn't that criminal what the it's, hell is it's this it's well done but inappropriate yeah voiced by julia roberts so it looks like an alien that wants to lay its eggs with me and I do believe I see her other eyes peeking out <laughs> over the top of her head. This is monstrous. Right. Um, so, I mean, the CG doesn't hold up well. I think some of the animation for Scooby-Doo is kind of fun. They, they have him do exaggerated expressions, and he kind of wobbles around a bit. Well, I mean, they can, is... they can at least do that. I mean, they're trying... 
bless their hearts, they're trying to capture the the essence of the old series, and I can at least applaud them for that. For that, it would have been so easy to do a cheap deconstructionist take on Scooby Doo, or to do a shitty dark and gritty Scooby Doo. I like that they're trying to make a live action version of this old cartoon, and they're not commenting on anything. I guess with the exception of the pot jokes. Um, they're just they're trying to make these characters live and breathe in three dimensions. They don't succeed, but I really applaud the effort. Yeah, um, and there's a lot of scenes with Scooby Doo. It's not like Scooby Doo is not in this movie a lot. You have the unfortunate task of Scooby Doo is in bright daylight for most of the film, which oh, yeah. makes the CG look even worse. And then watching this in high definition. Oh no. Right, makes the film, makes the CG look even more pasted on, and you see even, <laughs> makes it hold up even worse. Especially, so. especially on the monsters, just like the smooth textures. The best-looking oh, yeah. monster is the Luna Ghost from the opening scene. <laughs> Nothing yep. is as good as that. Which looks like it's a person in an outfit that they just superimposed on. Yeah, they just did some digital trickery to, to kind of enhance it. It looks like a cartoon, a design from the old cartoon, kind yeah. of nice and simple. Yeah, they, you know, they could have... And this is, I think this is a flaw in the movie. So, as anyone who's seen the original Scooby-Doo or Are You will know, the core premise of that show is that the Mysteries Incorporated team, they investigate what appears to be a supernatural occurrence, but in the end it always turns out to be somebody in a costume using cheap stage magician trickery to make something right. appear supernatural. And that's one of the great charms of the show is that there's always a logical scientific explanation uh, for things. Now, mind you, the conceit with all the movies, and this goes back to the animated movies, is no, no, all the monsters are real. Uh, and that's something that this movie totally misses. The moment you see CGI creatures show up, you know it can't be a person in a costume. Mm. And that's something this movie should have done. It should have kept us guessing between whether or not this was going to finally be the time the team uncovers something really supernatural, or if it's just another person in a suit. And we don't get anything close to that until the climax. And it, yeah, and it, it was really in an interview energy. with uh, the writer James Gunn. It was actually an interview he did for the sequel, but he says he regrets the first film isn't much of a mystery. Mm, yeah, because like right, right off, like right off the bat, um, it's once they once they get to the island, it's really quickly set up what the mystery they're supposed to investigate is, and you immediately meet all the suspects. And then there's a lot of running around. And I was mentioning this uh, the Scooby Doo film films like feels like the second film in a trilogy because there you know there's this is the first theatrical Scooby Doo movie even though as we mentioned the character had been around for for decades at this point for over thirty years at this point and um, you start the film with the team breaking up seems like a, a poor decision especially in the first ten minutes if you're going to do that at least save it for halfway through the film well, as a second act conflict. Because you don't get a chance to see them working with all cylinders firing. Instead, yeah. you get them bitching at each other from, like, the first sequence. Yeah, to do that time jump and to almost immediately get them back together does does seem like a, a weak sauce. And it's and it's funny because that's, act, that's actually part of the premise um, in, I think it was 1999, I think it was, um, the first of a series, a long-running series of direct-to-video Scooby-Doo movies came out. Uh, Scooby-Doo and the Zombie Island, or the Mystery of Zombie Island. 
And the premise of that movie is that the mystery gang broke up and it's several years later and we see them get back together. But one of the strong suits of that movie is they establish the characters by showing what they do on their own. Uh, and it's act- and it's really quite clever, and it only makes the movie better. But yeah, here, we really should have seen what the gang's like when they're on their own, rather than to have it sort of tossed off. Oh, well, I spent three years becoming a black belt. Well, I spent this many years working for NASA designing missile defense systems, which is not what NASA does. The Department of Defense does that. So, right off the bat, very bad pre-search. Well, it, it's not a good sign where you get an opening action sequence, and then it goes two years later. The the only thing I like about that transition is is the pot <laughs> joke. Because I think like yes. the last line is, the "Well, music. Scoob, we're just gonna do what we always do." Two years later, and we see the mystery machine with all this smoke coming out of it. But then it turns out the reason there's smoke is that Scooby and Shaggy are making grilled cheese inside. But the music they play, the music uh, stinger is past the Ducci. Oh, yeah, past the duchy on the left-hand side. Past the duchy on the left-hand side. What you should yeah. do, at least. It, it's only polite. Oh, what's... I yeah. gotta, so this is digging into Scooby-Doo lore. Did you notice what Shaggy was eating in that scene? Well, was it probably some disgusting sandwich combination? Yes, but what was the sand? But do you remember what the sandwich wasn't made out of? Cheese? I don't know. No, so he's uh, uh, he specifically states that the burgers they're making are eggplant burgers, which I've actually had. They're not too bad. Uh, where oh, it's just yeah. a big old okay. slice of eggplant. If you notice, Shaggy never eats meat in this movie. Is the character always been a vegetarian? Not always. Um, during the production of the first season of Scooby-Doo, Casey Kasem, who's the original voice of Shaggy, and the American Top 40 Countdown guy, um, during the production of that, of that movie... Uh, he became a vegetarian, and I believe he stayed a vegetarian until the end of his life. Uh, hmm. uh, he passed, sadly, recently. But um, part of his contract with them was, I will keep doing the voice of Shaggy, but Shaggy, I won't eat meat. I don't want to play a character who eats meat. So Shaggy can't eat meat. So if you notice, from the second season onward, whenever Sha- whenever um, Casey Kasem's doing the voice of Shaggy, he's never eating anything identifiable as meat. I didn't know that, but that's a pretty neat detail, and the movie doesn't rub it in your face. You don't get a big monologue about his uh, vegetarianism. Yeah, the movie scored a lot of points for me uh, with just that bit of Scooby lore. Uh, I-, I thought that was delightful. Are you a vegetarian? Uh, no, no, I'm not. I do, I do try to eat. I do try to eat more vegetables and meat. Uh, I, I kind of agree with uh, uh, with Thomas Jefferson that the meat should be sauce to my vegetables, um, mm, right. but. I, I, I'll frankly admit, I probably do eat more than more meat than I should, um, and, and I think there is something to be said for vegetarianism. It's just not something that's that's resonated with me personally. But I, I like I like that conviction of the actor spreading over into the character. It makes for some very right. Um, it, it, I, I did veganism, I think for a year or so, and um, what surprised me is you think oh it'd be cheaper, and it's actually not. It actually gets as expensive as a protein heavy diet, especially if you get. The, the vegan substitutes for meat. Those vegan sausages are like $7 for a pack of four. Are they any um, good? Not really. I mean, they're okay. I, your mileage may vary. I think you're better off, you know, just using tofu, and that absorbs the flavor of sauce and, and so forth. Well, because, like, um, ha- having tried, having had some vegetarian meals and, and having tried to cook vegetarian, the thing, the thing I've learned is vegetarian food is at its best when it's not trying to be meat. 
That's why I like an eggplant yeah, burger right. more than I like a veggie burger. Because a veggie burger is vegetables trying to be meat. An eggplant burger is trying to be an eggplant burger, and it's far that, better. At that's doing right. That. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I agree with your theory on, on less ingredients is better. But it, what we should be talking about more is uh, Scooby Doo here. Um, oh yeah, yeah. So I do like the the set design in this film of Spooky Island. It looks convincingly like a tacky section of Epcot Center. <laughs> Yeah, it's like you walk you walked into a Margaritaville on Halloween, right? It you know, it, or it looks like a yeah, like like a cheesy. It, we have a tiki themed restaurant in Portland, Oregon. I'll look up the name for it. Huh. Uh, that that reminds me of, of how this place looks in the film. It, the only thing that could have been better is if they had slyly snuck some references into classic Scooby Doo into it, into the design work because nothing looks quite like a Hanna Barbera design. Yeah, the the bar in Portland I'm talking about is the Alibi Tiki Lounge. And if you go to the Tiki Lounge, they have karaoke every night. If you go if you happen to be there after midnight, they give you free food, which is chop suey, which means everything that didn't sell chopped up with noodles sprayed in soy sauce. Which um That sounds good it, to me. Uh that that's what when you're what drunk want, doing karaoke at midnight in a tiki lounge, it, it, it does the trick. But, um, right, I think you, you know, the, the mood of the Spooky Island is, is very good. I, um, I like some of the jokes we get are surprisingly subtle. You get, you know, we have the, um, Zarkos is, is the sort of bald, um, he looks a bit like a bad guy or something from Live and Let Die, sort of voodoo looking guy. Well, he, he's, and, he's like. Oh, he's like a, a bald white guy in like vaguely Polynesian with vaguely Polynesian tattoos. Yeah, and he like walks on screen at one point while people are partying. It plays threatening music, and then he sits down to play some lounge piano. That was a clever subversion. I liked him on the piano, and I love how everybody in the in the tiki lounge really likes his piano playing. We get uh, we see a thing. You know, as soon as the Mystery Incorporated crew lands on the island, we see. Um, people leaving the island are a bit like zombies, but hyper-violent. Well, yeah, like, they're all, like, because that, that's kind of the joke, is that everyone leaving the boat is, like, an uh, is an unruly, unkempt, unkempt uh, college student. Everybody leaving is well-behaved, orderly, in a line. But if somebody talks to them, they just, like, pick the people up and throw them with seemingly superhuman strength. So you have that as the mystery, along with the an actual phantasm of some sort on the island. And they, the team splits up to do their own thing. Um, I especially like where Velma is at this ceremony, and there's like a, a, like a demon face in the flames, and they're asking like, "Oh, don't you think that's scary?" And she's like, "Well, I would think it's scary, but we can see there you have some uh, holographic projectors there, there, and there." And, and you know what? That that feels like a setup. Like it feels like she would point out a special effect one more time, but then when the real demons show up, she would be flummoxed because there's no projectors. Like that feels like a setup for something that never happens. Or maybe right. Or maybe they could use the projector in the final action sequence to to do something to scare the bad guys off. That's true. Right. They do discover yeah. that the demon's weakness is light, so why not make a demon zapping laser? I mean, their plans. Right, cool. right. A, a projector, yeah, a projected image that shoots uh, light from his eyes. Yeah, right. Um, it's a lot of weird things with the movie. We get, you know, when we see the, uh, the Scooby do himself gets a phone call at the bar, and a scary voice tells him to uh, 
there's a sack of hamburgers waiting for him in the woods. <laughs> in the and his darkest response is, part okay. of the woods. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which I thought that was that was pretty good. And of course, Scooby Doo goes there, and one of these big rabbit demon things—do they give the demons a name? No, they. Well, I think they just referred. I think they just refer to them as spirits. I don't think they even use the word demon. Hmm. As I as I recall, um, the word demon is never uttered in this movie. Okay, so, well, they have they have the demon Ritus. Well, yeah, that art that artifact they find, but that's it. You know? And that's probably like demon with an A E. It is. Oh, wow, hey. So we have that, you know, going on. We have, um, there's a spooky castle in the distance that the characters all end up at. And I think this is one of the more successful action sequences in the picture. Well, again, because it's it, like it a... It captures um, the energy of the cartoon. It, it does, and it's, it's sort of like the Haunted Mansion ride, but with the actual danger in there. You know, characters almost get impaled. It's, um, it's scary, but it's not bloody. The and setup, the setup is great because even then, like it's it's Shaggy and Velma, and Shaggy's like, "There's no way I'm going in there, man, because that's a spooky old castle, and spooky old castles only have two things in them: paintings where the eyes follow you, and suits <laughs> of armor that you think are empty, but there's really a guy in it, and he tries to follow you, and check when you look at him, and then he tries to cut your head off." <laughs> God, and I love it. how many times did that happen? It happened twelve times. Right, and you get cute animation of Scooby-Doo looking around, you know, pantomiming those things, which I thought was a nice bit of animation. And that's kind of a, a flaw in this movie, because like, Scooby pantomiming action is a big part of the original series, but whenever they do it in this movie, it's always so distracting. It's not complimenting the dialogue, it's just like, you don't know what to look at. It's, it's those creepy eyes, I think we, we settled on it. That's um, part of it too, yeah. So we do get, there's a lot more action in this film than I thought, because eventually, sort of at the main tiki bar lounge area, we get the, the monsters kind of come out in full sight in front of the uh, people, and um, they're sort of chasing people around and... Kidnapping and, and some people. The, kidnapping people. We also have the notion of possession, which I think gets beaten to death in this film. Oh, yeah. So why don't you explain how the possession works in the plot? Yeah, so um, the, the the demons have like a, a knockout gas they can breathe, and they capture people. Those people are taken to this, like, cauldron. Their souls are pulled out of their body and put into this cauldron. And that's another thing. They never use the word soul in this movie. They always refer to it as protoplasm. Although it's not protoplasm, it's ectoplasm, if it's anything. Uh, and then once your body's empty, a demon enters your body again they're never called demons because sunlight destroys them so they need a body to ride in but the demons are still demons they don't know how to pass for people so there's like a demon school where they watch instructional videos to learn how to act like normal american teens and that instructional video is my favorite part of this movie hmm it's ridiculously complicated for what it's trying to do it is. We also get another example of bad CGI of the souls' faces. Oh, God! Yeah, why couldn't they have just <laughs> recorded their faces and superimposed them onto the scene? They look like these weird deflated balloon mummies. I think Velma looked okay, but... And Scooby-Doo, of course, looks fine because it's CG creation anyway. Well, he, he doesn't look any more horrific than he already looks. I'd argue he might look less horrific because it's all... Yeah. One, you know, one of those human eyes and a dog body um. yeah but yeah and, and and although that does can we can we talk about that instructional video 
Yeah, it feels like it's from a smarter film. Yes, it does. Like you can feel James Gunn's fingerprints all over that scene. Because it, it sort of is like one of those in-flight videos, it seems like, but it's also like those 80s corporate videos where it's like, that's not how you do it, this is how you do it. Well, and it all, has that the, they're using slain and it's in like the most forced like way like possible. Late 80s, early 90s anti-drug videos. Oh, that's right, with the, with the clothes and how they, how you doing, bro? I'm doing fine, dog. Let's higgy my schniznit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> God, it just, it's like, it's, it's, it's perfect, which kind of pays off later when, like, we see all the Islanders have been, or all the, all the students have been possessed, and they're all, they're all speaking like that, but they don't really hit that joke hard enough. No, if they hit it harder, I think it would have paid off more. Um, yeah, like, they, they should have been speaking a whole spectrum of outdated slang. I, I think that's what it is. The slang should have been outdated instead of trying to sound like what contemporary yeah so i'm trying to sound contemporary uh it's a stupid joke but i do like it and they hit it a few times in the movie and i laughed every time where there's one of the uh the teenagers on the island is melvin do oh yeah like, i have a phone right. call for a mr do uh, i'm melvin do is it for me oh uh, no it's for scooby do <laughs> right they should have hit that a few more times. <laughs> they hit it, I think, once at the end, but I think that's a cute joke. It's uh, Martin Broom plays Melvin Dew. It's just, you know, a little more than a featured extra, but it's a fun fun little part yeah. in there. Um, you, let's see. I mean, towards the end of this film, it really reminds me a bit of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. That's kind of what they're channeling, yeah. And they're fighting the demon cultists in that pit. Because you find out, because they do, while they're exploring that, that uh, spooky castle, uh, Daphne finds this weird-looking Hellraiser pyramid puzzle box, uh, which mm -hmm. we learn is the demon ritus, which uh, is some relic left behind by... They, they seem to imply that this movie takes place in a Lovecraftian universe where there are strange, inhuman alien things imprisoned in ruins. Um, and... It describes a ritual that you can use, to, essentially, to make yourself a god and take over the world. And that that's what the, whoever the antagonist is is up to. And I forget where the thread was with that, but then again... <laughs> We're talking about sort of the end sequence of the movie. Yeah, yeah, so in the end, all the possessed people are in, are in the pit with the Well of Souls. And you find that the ritual, you have to absorb all this soul energy. Um, and in a... And once you've absorbed it, you then have to seal the energy in you with a purely good soul. And it turns out the only pure, good, innocent soul on the island is Scooby-Doo himself. So he's going to be the final hmm. sacrifice. Rouse Dower. Right. And um, I, I, do, I did feel sad, actually, when Scooby-Doo dies. Well, he doesn't he gets, quite die. He just gets his soul plucked out. But he gets his soul taken out, but you see the body you. go limp. And I felt sad for a minute, even though I didn't like how Scooby-Doo looks in the film. Um, it is a bit too busy, though. You have all these souls flying around. You have, you know, people trying to do these Indiana Jones uh, swinging around from the ceilings. You know, of course, the plan goes sideways. Uh, you have the discovery from earlier that light will defeat the demons, but the... Sorry, the monsters. But the monsters don't show up until pretty late into the sequence, which I think is a mistake. Well, all the people are possessed, but they don't really use their, like, super demon strength. 
And the uh, the reveal in the film of, of who the bad guy is, I was surprised by it the first time around, but I shouldn't have been, because you have this forced flashback not too far in the film where Velma is thinking about how good things used to be, and they talk about Scrappy-Doo. Yeah, and they talk about Scrappy-Doo who pisses everybody off and gets left on the side of the He literally road. pisses on Velma. Yeah, pisses on Velma. Oh god, which I love. I love that that tie. The only thing I like about that scene is how that ties into into Freddy's like fragile masculinity. I know what you're doing. You're marking your territory. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like the moment the moment that shows up, it's like, oh, that's going to be the twist ending. Is that it's Scrappy? And and this is the only thing where they do kind of comment on a Scooby Doo like structure because you know Mister. Was it Thermopylides? Uh, oh, Mr. Mandavarius. You know, he's leading the ritual and absorbing the souls, and he falls over, and they notice there's like a seam in his neck. Oh, he's in a mask! They pull the mask off. It's an animatronic human skull. Hmm. That's clever. They, they needed more like that, but then, of course, the torso opens, and, and a bad CGI Scrappy's in there. And not, not just that, but Scrappy absorbs the souls and becomes... Instead of a little tiny dog with a big head, he becomes a huge sort of monster. Yeah, the Scrappy Rex, who gets his own voice actor, J.P. Minot. Not that you can tell, and not that it really matters. Yeah, oh, and actually, he's the voice actor, so tying it into a previous episode, The Emperor's New Groove, uh, and its sequel, Quonk's New Groove, it eventually got a TV series, The Emperor's New School, J.P. Bonneau plays Kuzco instead of David Spade in that series. Uh, that's an odd connection of a movie we just covered, but okay. There it is. <laughs> there, whoop, there it is. Um, Which is shockingly not on the soundtrack. Oh, I was going to mention that earlier. Yeah, so the soundtrack to this film isn't very good. Uh, specifically, the score I have major problems with because almost every time it uh, gets a chance to... It quotes the Scooby-Doo theme ad nauseum. Sometimes it, that works, but I think the I think the problem is there's too much music in this movie. Uh, they they cram so much incidental music over or under every character action. It is so distracting. Hmm. But uh, can we talk about so after everyone on the island gets possessed, we see Sugar Ray playing and everybody you know dancing to it. You could not have picked better music for a bunch of brainwashed possessed white people to dance to on a vacation than Sugar Ray. Yeah, it I I think that cameo was amusing. I it, it worked. Uh, and of course, so so this this movie this feels like the most 90s movie I've ever seen despite the fact that it came out in 2002. Yeah, it's uh, everything is brightly lit. Um you have a lot of sort of like uh, sort of neon colors everywhere. Um, the bad it, CGI. It, bad CGI. The um, the sixties nostalgia. The sixties seventies nostalgia. Sixties seventies nostalgia. Right, it was huge at the time. Also, you have um, gee, like a lot of like pop songs in the soundtrack where it's that really um, white nasally sounding like pop punk music for lack of a better term except when it's like trying to be funk i mean the baja men are on the soundtrack little romeo is on the soundtrack uh sampling you have a cover of uh, you have a cover of um oh the snoop dog song 
where instead of it, they go bow wow wow Scooby Doo Scooby Day or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I will say this: lyrics. the Land of a Million Drums has a really great sound, and I feel like it's trying to describe the plot of this movie. So you've got your song, rap song that explains the movie, although it's not quite rap. Um, something I do like though: the Atomic Fireballs have a song on this movie, "The Man with the Hex." I really like that. Oh song. yeah. And it uses a classic joke, the man with the plan, who do you do what, remind me of the man. It remind you of the babe, yeah. they Babe. It's, it's a very oh. funky, very, very just raw version of that. That I really liked. I would listen to that song with no irony. This, uh, this Scooby-Doo film is infamous because um, of a Roger Ebert review that online film critics used as proof to say Robert, Roger Ebert is, is old hat. It shouldn't be reviewing movies. Really? Um, yeah, so his he gave the film one star. Uh-huh. And he says, um, not in the last paragraph, not only am I ill-prepared to review this movie, but I venture to guess that anyone who is not literally a member of a Scooby-Doo fan club would be equally incapable. The movie exists in a closed universe, and the rest of us are aliens. The internet was invented so you can find someone else's review of Scooby-Doo. Start surfing. <laughs> That's brilliant! Which, when Ebert's doing a doing a negative review, he's, I think he's often at his best. Um, and that, that's a pretty savage takedown. But people took that, I think, quite literally, being like, oh, this man doesn't understand Scooby-Doo, he doesn't get us. What's well, like, well, of course not, he was in his 60s at the time. Why do you, why would, wouldn't you be a bit disturbed if a man in his 60s was a huge Scooby-Doo fan that was a, I don't know, like it I was... Would, I'm, I'm presumably going to be 60 someday, I'm still going to be a huge Scooby-Doo fan. <laughs> What I'm getting at is a film critic is not going to like all the same things you like. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just because you they hate a movie you like, and frankly, this film isn't very good, um, it doesn't mean you should toss their whole oeuvre out the window. And and that's the peculiar thing about this movie. Because I this this isn't a good film, and yet I was very entertained, uh, both as a oh, Scooby-Doo fan, as a James yeah. Gunn fan, and just as a person who likes movies. It's a very weird position to be in. So what do you think, Scooby... Or, not Scooby, sequel yes or sequel no for Scooby-Doo? I'm just, I'm just going to flat out say it, sequel yes. You should see this at least once. Although it probably will help if you if you like Scooby Doo uh, without irony, uh, and if you like Scooby Doo only with irony, why not pass the duchy and enjoy this film that way? Yeah, um, I would say Scooby No, but or sequel, <laughs> sequel, sequel No, but well, uh, but it's sort of on the edge for me because it, it's it's watchable as we just said. It, it's likable in parts, but I think it, it doesn't quite get the mix right. It could have been more adult. There's a lot more adult jokes filmed that I guess were in the deleted section of the DVD. I happened to watch the streaming, so I wasn't able to check out special features. But um, they're out there for those that want to find them. And um, I think if they were to do a Scooby-Doo film now, they would probably make it more... Um, you know, like, and do it in the tone of, like, uh, Tim and Eric or Adult Swim... Uh, those sort of things. I disagree. I feel like if it was made now, it would probably be much truer to the source material and would be full of, like, they would get Frank Welker to be Scooby-Doo, and they'd probably get Andy Serkis to do motion capture if it was going to be motion capture. It might be funnier if Scooby-Doo was just a flat-out 2D cartoon dog. 
Speaking of Frank Welker, did you see they're actually having him voicing Megatron in the new Transformers film? Yeah, I, yeah uh, that's, that is fascinating. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to see that movie, but I am glad Frank Welker got a hefty paycheck. Yep, because he's been, you know, he did the voice in the 80s cartoon, and he did voices in a lot of the video games. But they had, um, oh, what's his name play Megatron in the first three films? I have no idea. Those movies who, left such little impression on me. Who played the Elf King in Lord of the Rings? Oh, the guy who played Agent Smith in uh, The Matrix? Yes. Yep, that oh, guy. Oh, crud. His name escapes me, but I know who you mean. Viggo Mortensen? It's not no. Viggo Mortensen. It is... Hugo Weaving. Hugo Weaving. I'm sorry, that's it. The Red Skull himself. Um, yeah, so we have that. Let's see what else. Oh, that, 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 uh... so, so, you know, we know that, I mean, this is, this is the summer of gun, which is why we're doing this movie. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people don't realize that the script that's written for a movie is not necessarily the script that's filmed. There can be rewrites all throughout the process. The script oh, yeah. the different hands. Everybody's yep. wanting to put their stamp on things, even if that dilutes the work. So, um, a few months ago... James Gunn was asked on Twitter uh, about uh, like about this uh, about this movie and essentially how much of his original script made it into the final film, and his only comment is like I will it was like uh, I tell you this I have never once written the word cowabunga. Hmm. He um. Which is he was more happy. These lines. Yeah, he was more happy about the second film. That's for sure. Uh, Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed will be covering next week here on Sequel Cast 2. Um, but yeah, uh, so for Pitch a Sequel, I think what I would do is do a um, do a spinoff movie with Shaggy and Scooby. I think that's the logical thing to do. They're sort of the fan favorite characters, especially with little kids. You know, um, Shaggy is like the Michelangelo of the group. I guess they're both <laughs> Michelangelo's. party dude. Yeah, Shaggy and Scooby are both party dudes, right? And this would be about um, Scooby gets a it's a sponsorship to go to a a dog um, a dog park, like a Westminster um, dog show sort of thing. Yeah, Westminster dog show. That's it. And and Shaggy is there with them, but of course there's a mystery that breaks out. But the rest of the team is is doing a investigation in Antarctica. So because of that. Shaggy and Scooby have to solve a mystery by themselves, and it's uh, it's interesting. It's uh, it'll be a lot of twists and turns. Um, I think the joke will be a bit. The jokes will be a little more edgy. I think I'd go for a PG thirteen rating. You are dangerously it, close to describing the disastrous Scooby Doo spinoff. Shaggy and Scooby Doo get a clue. I didn't know that was a thing, but okay. And I, I would call it Scooby Doo and Shaggy Two with the number two. Yes. Ooh, clever. Calling a spinoff number two in a series. That doesn't confuse people. Um, I, speaking of stuff in sequels that surprised me, I was um, listening to the podcast How Did This Get Made on The Room. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the guy with the beard that's the second lead actor in the film, Greg Sestero, actually played the lead in the direct-to-video sequel Retro Puppet Master. Oh, cool. He's the young, um, 
was it Toulouse or whatever? The, uh, the dude that Yeah, Durant, yeah, the guy that did the, the puppets. So there you go. I, I clearly know nothing about that series, even though I got a box set of the Puppet Master <laughs> one through ten for like five bucks the other day. They can be quite fun. They might be fun on Sequel Cast Two someday. Hmm. Okay. So Anyway, that's my pitch of sequel. So you had mentioned there was a Scooby-Doo and Shaggy TV show that was disastrous. How so? Well, well, it wasn't... Okay, so what what it was, this came out, I think, a year or two after uh, Lunatics Unleashed. I don't know if you remember that attempt to build equity with the Warner Brothers characters. Lunatics Unleashed was sort of the superhero. Um, it yeah, looked a bit like Batman Beyond, right? Of the sort of anime. Yeah. In fact, so, they had a lawsuit because originally the rabbit was called Buzz Bunny, which is the same name of, as a, a vibrator in Europe. And so um, they had to change the name of the lead character. That's an interesting thing to unfold. So yeah, Shaggy and Scooby Doo get a clue. Um, it was it it was aimed at a much younger audience. It was full of '90s extremeness. But the, the whole premise was Shaggy and Scooby Doo inherit a fortune and get like an awesome Brewster's millions and just travel the world being rich gadabouts. Uh, you know, anytime you make the main characters rich, didn't Roseanne like have him win the lottery the last season? Well, that was the like, final just, season. But yeah. isn't, isn't the final season meta? Isn't the final season supposed to be a coma fantasy? Uh, as it turns out, although ironically, they're allegedly uh, trying to bring Roseanne back. And they're also bringing friends back for a season, and they're also bringing Will and Grace back for a season. So, and X-Files is coming back for another season, and we have Twin Peaks coming back. Um, although Twin Peaks, I think, can be excused because it's been like over 20 years. Oh, you know what? I'm gonna send you a piece of uh, a piece of production art from Shaggy and Scooby Doo get a clue. Just so this kind of sums up everything that's wrong with the series. Even the character designs are lifeless. Reduced. Oh no! Oh, the eyes. The eyes are terrible. They're they're like they're more lifeless and hollow than Little Orphan Annie. Uh, yes, I was thinking the same thing. Okay, so what's your pitch of sequel? Okay, so my my pitch of sequel uh, will be uh. Scooby-Doo, uh, Scooby-Doo part boo. And the premise, so the premise of this movie is that after the notoriety that the Mystery Incorporated gang gets, uh, after, uh, solving the, the mystery on Spooky Island, uh, they end up getting really famous, uh, and end up shooting a pilot for a TV series about their adventures. But what it is, is one of those, like, ghost hunting things. So it's the Scooby gang trying to investigate a typical Scooby-Doo mystery involving, like, a haunting at a carnival. Uh, however, they're being followed around by camera crews and producers and things like that. And uh, what it turns out is that it's scheme upon scheme upon scheme. So there is, like, a crooked popcorn vendor who is trying to haunt the amusement park to get it shut down so that he can, like, take it over and sell the land because there's, like, uranium underneath it or whatnot. Uh, and he's got like a, the creepy carnival barker is is his ghost persona, uh, but he's been encouraged to do this by the executive producer of this Mysteries Incorporated reality show, because the contract that the Scooby Gang signed, the Scooby Gang Mystery Incorporated brand, turns out it's worth billions. And the producer has got them to film this show specifically so that he can turn them against each other. He's specifically arranging the show and the haunting so that the Mystery Incorporated gang gets on each other's nerves so that they will break up. Because by the contract they signed, and this is actually inspired by the contract that the goodies signed with ITV, if you know how British comedy works, where if the Mystery Incorporated breaks up, 
the entire Mystery Incorporated brand, the Mystery Machine, the Mystery Solving Teens, the Scooby-Doo, all that, the ownership of that brand, the copyright, passes to this producer. And then he wants to merchandise the hell out of it. He wants to set up Mystery Incorporated franchises. He wants to turn them into cartoon characters. He wants Scooby-Doo dolls. And of course, none of them will ever see a dime. But Hmm. most important of all, because Scooby is an animal, he also gains ownership of Scooby-Doo and wants to force Scooby-Doo to be the mascot for this whole thing. So that's a, that's a second layer of mysteries that the Scooby gang does end up solving because it turns out they are still detectives. They can still solve a mystery. So they figure all this out. There's a showdown. Uh, there's a showdown at uh, the carnival. They defeat the creepy carnival barker and unmask him. Uh, they, uh, they unmask the producer, but it turns out that every single person on the shoot of this show is a person in a mask. It's Don Knotts. It's Sandy Duncan. It's Sonny and Cher. It's Adam mm, West. Uh, it's see. anyone. It's any celebrity, celebrity who ever encountered the Scooby Gang. They don't like that they were shown up by the Scooby Gang, so they wanted the Scooby brand to make ridiculous amounts of money off of it. So that's my meta ending. Very clever. Um, and that's our pitch a sequel segment. Next, we're going to go on to what you're watching. I must ask, Matt, what are you watching? I've been on a lot of different um, trips lately, but I did watch a... Did you go with Mary Jane? Uh, No, I did not go with Mary (laughs) Jane. Um, That's a good question, Uh. though. I did watch this this documentary that was... Actually, you know, uh, scratch that. I'll talk about a film I reviewed for Battleship Pretension. Uh... (laughs) bit of a plug there it's a a film i think you would like thrasher i don't know if you've seen it it uh, stars john stamos and um vanity and richard simmons not richard simmons jesus christ um what's the person gene simmons gene simmons yes never too young to die have you seen this one no, no, I haven't. It was one of the rare theatrical... It was supposed to launch John Stamos's uh, career from soaps to live-action to theatrical uh, feature films. And this was a big flop directed by Jill Bettman, who did a lot of television before and after. Um, it, it's sort of like a, 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 a young adult James Bond. Um, the main character's father is played by George Lazenby, who himself was James Bond. And John Stamos plays Lance Stargrove, who gets his own theme song, Stargrove. Oh, I've heard of this. Yeah. Um, Shout Factory just released it on uh, Blu-ray and DVD, and it's uh, it's well worth seeking out, um, especially on sale. Like, it, it, it's ridiculous. You know, the stuff with the bad guys is a bit like Mad Max meets the Warriors. And you have Gene Simmons is a hermaphroditic villain. Not just a cross-dressing villain, a hermaphrodite, uh, hermaphrodite saying, I am both man and woman. The tenderness of a woman, but the fierceness of a man. Um, who, who gets into a fisticuffs. Um, also, in a delightful kind of small sidekick role, we have Robert England as one of the bad guys. Oh, I have and, to see this. And, and Vanity, you might remember as being the female lead in... Um, the Last Dragon? Last Dragon. And in this, yeah, and she was in, she was also uh, she was also in Vanity Six, where they performed "Nasty Girl," the possibly the most sexually charged song ever made. 
Is Nasty, is that the same Nasty Girl that was on the soundtrack for Beverly Hills Cop? Yes, another sequel cast connection. I see, yep. And uh, and Prince actually fronted, uh, was produced behind that band. Yeah, he got them together, because I think one, at least one of them, I think, was one originally one of his backup singers, but he fostered them, kept them going for a while. Uh, supposedly, there were only, there were three members of Vanity Six. The rumor has it that Prince named them Vanity because she was the front woman, but Six came from the number of nipples in the band. I don't know if that's true, but that's the rumor. He also wanted to name Vanity... Uh... Because that's her stage name, right? Wanted to call name her Vagina, but that didn't happen. Um, and, and one of the best things about the DVD release is the commentary is uh, very, very funny. Cool. Very good commentary by. Let me get the guy's name. He like goes into such deep. He talks for like three minutes about John Stamos's watch in the picture, and how complicated <laughs> of a watch it was. Um, a really complicated special effect. The special effects in the, in the film aren't too um, too complicated. It's all practical effects, I think. But they try to get the, you know, the, the a computer disc is what they're trying to get, and they're like, we have to get the kilobytes. Like, oh, it's this is just complete nonsense, and it's short, and the action sequences are well done. Like, it's not the boring kind of bad movie. It actually moves along, and the sound the the commentary on the DVD that's pretty cool is by um, playwright Russell Dyball. Hmm. Who also was a employee for um, Shout Factory for some point. He might still be an employee. I'm not sure. But so it's one of those movies where it's like a glorious disaster. Yeah, but it, it's actually fun. It's not boring. Cool. Um, but I, I'd rec- highly recommend Never Too Young to Die. You can check out my review at BattleshipPretension.com. Um, the 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 um, Shout Factory thing that's coming out that I hope I get a chance to review is we're finally getting a Blu-ray release of the Walter Hill film um, Streets of Fire, which was a action movie musical that only generated one hit song in the U.S., Tempted. Was it kind of the how do you talk to an angel of its day? Um, it had mediocre, I think it like might have peaked at number nine or something. I could be right about the sun. It might not be tempted at all, but it's something along those lines. Anyway, what have you been watching, Thrasher? All right, well, uh, I have finally dived uh, headfirst into the new season of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Oh, I've watched some of that, too, so I might be able to chip in here. Yeah, I've, um, I've watched uh, the first three episodes now. I've watched the first episode, and then I skipped around and watched two other ones later in the sequence. I'm kind so, of curious, why did you skip around? Um... So, uh, one of the episodes is about Star Crash, and it co-stars Christopher Plummer and David Hasselhoff. You know, that I've combination seen, I, I haven't my seen interest. that episode, but I've seen that movie. Oh, have you? Yeah, it's an Italian Star Wars knockoff. Um, with the robot with the really weird cowboy voice. It's <laughs> yeah. strange. In fact, it was even distracting. Uh, and the other one was a, a children's film called, I think, like the... The Christmas that almost wasn't, or something. Um, oh my God! They do the Christmas that almost wasn't. Yeah, that's that's a. Uh, you can correct me if this is the right film or not, the but Glenn it's like Yarbrough Santa. Theme? Yeah, Santa Claus gets an attorney to get the land back for the North Pole. Yeah, because Santa doesn't own the deed to the North Pole. It's owned that's right. by a crooked land developer named Prune, yeah. who's going to kick yes. Santa and Mrs. Claus and his elf off. And oh, it has yeah. a it has a theme song by the late um, Glenn Yarborough. Glenn Yarbrough. Christmas, Christmas that almost wasn't. Right, so. 
those are the ones that I watched. I think Star uh, Crash was my favorite. But the wow. the first movie, which is uh, Reptilicus, I think. Oh yeah. Is is a fine example of a generic monster movie from that time period. It's it's wonderfully horrible. Especially when it shoots the the lasers. <laughs> the green superimposed. The, the um, green. It's supposed to be like monster venom, yeah, but it's like this uh, weird superimposed glowy goo. Yeah. So what do you? So it's a different cast, and what do you think oh. of it for mystery science theater? Well, all right. So this is the weird position I'm it in. It should be noted that Joel, uh, the creator of the show, is a writer on the staff. Yes, I think he's also a producer. Uh, mm-hmm. In the third episode, he appears on screen, but he doesn't. He doesn't speak, which is a weird choice. He also appears on screen in a different in a different episode too. Um, yeah. Also, does not speak. But so this is this is the weird position I'm in. I love Mystery Science Theater. I in fact love this Mystery Science Theater. I think it's great that we're getting some more episodes, and and yet, I am so satisfied with the. 10 seasons of Mystery Science Theater that came before this that I've got to wonder, why do I need more? Because nostalgia sells and it raised money on Kickstarter and then Netflix picked up the rest of the bill. Exactly. I think this is the... I think Mystery Science Theater 3000 is the moment where I'm going to start turning against nostalgia. Where I'm going to start feeling that nostalgia is more of a liability... Because uh, the thing is, there there are what about, lots of what things about this from podcast my past I like checking out, Thrasher. including Mystery Science Theater Three Thousand. It's all downhill from here for me. What about this podcast? Isn't this podcast nostalgia? Not for me. No, I, I consider this active film criticism. I do consider film film okay. as a timeless medium. Uh, yes, we do review movies that can be viewed as nostalgia property, but that's not how I personally approach them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, it's it's not like I guess what you're against is the idea of. Oh, we're gonna bring back. Uh... Oh, I don't know. They've done this so. Yeah, take take so anything that shaped me growing up. Right. I, I am now bored with the idea of bringing that back, even if it's done well. And I think this new Mystery Science Theater overall yeah. is done very well. However, it does have two big, two big flaws for me. One, they don't know when the fuck to shut up, and as a result, the pacing of this season is way off. I was quite um, intrigued with the... I read uh, an interview with one of the writers, I I forget whom, unfortunately, about the writing process for this one. Uh And they had multiple comedians assigned to certain episodes. And they even... When they did writing, they were given time codes in the movie when the jokes were supposed to happen. Well, that's actually how they did the original series. Oh, is it? Okay. They would mark the time code with cues for when they were supposed to set up jokes or to execute jokes. So I suppose it's a more sophisticated, like, digital thing now. But um, I, I just found that interesting. It's that specific. But it makes sense because y- you want the viewer to somewhat understand what's going on in the movie. You don't want too much overlap. But you think there's too many uh, too many jokes or... or... Well, I've noticed that if the two, two pacing issues. One is that there's multiple times where one of them just fires off a joke and then they don't stop. They just keep talking and talking and talking until someone on screen starts to speak and then they shut up. And as, as a result, I can't stop laughing at my own laughter cuts off jokes that I probably should be hearing and appreciating. And it's kind of exhausted. I feel like I have to watch mm. this show in absolute silence to pick up on everything they're saying. And I realize that might be a side, uh, a side effect of one of the changes they made 
because apparently one of Joel's ideas for this season is let's not talk over the movie. We will only talk when there's no dialogue, which seems like a baffling decision to me because these aren't good movies. We shouldn't be that attached to the dialogue. If we can tell a joke that's a really good joke that would mean talking over the actor, I say go for it. You're a comedy series. Do what is the most funny. You know, I noticed that. I didn't think it was a mandate, though. That's pretty interesting. Um, yeah, and then the other thing is, because because it's on Netflix, this is something that's really weird. Even though it's on Netflix, they still do bumpers as if they were commercial breaks, but those bumpers are never connected to the host segments. And that kind of screws with the flow of the host segments because it means every host segment has to begin with them coming out of the theater and every host segment has to end with them screaming movie sign. And that means you can only do certain setups and certain punchlines within the sketch. And that, I feel, has weakened the integrity of the show. I've never liked the segments between the movie on Mystery Science Theater, but I do like the bad guy stuff here with Pat Oswald and Felicia Day. I think they're a good team. I'm going to disagree. They're my least favorite part of the show. Really? You think they, they do it too much? They play it too well, thick? I don't think they play it too thick. I mean, I guess I guess this is this is, this is is part, part of it. Um, I don't like Felicia Day. I respect her. I think it's great that she's been able to build the career and the brand that she has. But that being said, I this, this is just one of a long list of things Felicia Day's been involved with where she's the least interesting, least fulfilling part of it for me. Um... What did she you feels think of like her... stunt casting. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of she her and uh, Doctor? She's just Felicia yeah. Day with bones in her hair. And Patton Oswald is just Patton Oswald. Neither one of them is playing a comic character. So I gotta wonder, why the hell are they in this show? They're never on camera long enough to do anything. To get people to donate more to the Kickstarter? Well, maybe. Although I thought they were cast after the Kickstarter had been had was mostly successful. You know, I think that's right. Um, I'm not sure. Okay. Well, that, that's pretty cool. Um, and, and I guess the other the other thing is the show doesn't have a heart anymore. Uh, it's lost the Midwestern sensibility that, that really grounded the show. That's completely gone. This so is as if Hollywood you were going to rank... comedy as you can be. And while that's a good, yeah. while that's a, a good thing to be, I don't think it's a good thing for Mystery Science Theater 3000 to be that thing. Okay, I'm going to have you rank the following... Okay. And then we'll, we'll close out the show. So, how would you rank uh, Joel, Mystery Science Theater, Mike, Mystery Science Theater, Netflix, Mystery Science Theater, Starship Titanic, and um, the other oh, one? Cinematic Titanic? Cinema- sorry, Cinematic Titanic, and uh, uh, what are the Rift Tracks? Okay, you're, break- you're breaking my heart. Yep. But if I have to rank these... Uh, it's going to be Mike Mystery Science Theater three thousand. Are you sorry? Are you ranking from best to worst, or? Uh, yeah, I'm putting yeah best to worst. Okay. So I'm going to put Mike Mike at the top, uh, and that's part because I think he did make a he did make an excellent host, and I do appreciate I do appreciate what he brought to the show, especially when when he became the host. Um, close second though, Joel. Uh, I res- mm. I respect Joel too much to despite the fact that I embarrassed myself. <laughs> In a party in front of him once, uh, I I'm not I, I I respect him too much and I enjoyed his episodes too much to put him anywhere. Uh, I can't let him be third or below. Um, Rift tra- uh, so then regular third place, uh, regular third place. I'll put Rift Tracks. Uh, 
close fourth to Rift Tracks Cinematic Titanic. Uh, I think the main the main reason I'm giving Rift Tracks I'm putting Rift Tracks over Cinematic Titanic is that I like the fact that they go after modern movies uh, and that they don't have to be tied up in licensing. That lets them tackle so many more things that need that treatment. Um, I'm putting this current Mystery Science Theater at the bottom simply because I have nowhere else to put it. I think I could like Jonah Ray. I think Jonah Ray could get up into the top three. Uh but I've got to watch the rest of this season first, and then I've got to see whether it still has legs in the second season. I was shocked how much of uh, the first episode of the new Netflix Mystery Science Theater spent setting up the premise. Yeah, that's what the theme song is for. Yeah. And uh, it, it sounds like it's performed by the same people, though. I mean, they changed the no, lyrics it's not. around. It's, it's, performed, not? it's performed by a Harmar superstar and a backing group they assembled for this. I couldn't tell. It sounded pretty close to me. Um, well, that's because they're slavish to the original song, but they're using... The original song was synthesized. This is all using real instruments. Oh, okay. So that is one difference. Yeah, I guess that's another thing. This is too good. There are too many resources in this show. Did you like the skit in uh, about the different um, mythological creatures? That was very well done. In the that, reptil- that was reptil- a great reptilicus. segment. Oh, lot of reptilicus. Although, and did you note that the voice of Tom Servo is Baron Vaughn? Yeah, who he, used to do the, the, the Leonard Moulton podcast. Although now Leonard Moulton hosts it with his daughter. Yeah. No, I think he's a good choice. I mean, I can't begr- like, I can't begrudge any of the people who are, who are in this. I think they're all great choices. I just don't think it's gelling the way it should. Uh, I think they've also forgotten that the robots are supposed to have distinct personalities. Also, I, I realize that it's it's always been in the show. Repeat yourself, it's just a show. I should really just relax. But this show has so many resources and has needlessly filled in so many gaps that now I find myself questioning everything about it. Like, for instance, why do they have so much wood on the satellite? I did not expect you to get this detailed, but on the other hand, I would expect nothing less. because you, you... <laughs> I, I, I'm that kind of demented person, and, and I can't believe I have so much. This is the thing that's driving, that's driving me a bit batty, is that I'm saying nothing but horrible things about this show that I love without question. But I guess that's what it is. It's, it's, like, it's, like, it's like a marriage. You do love someone unquestioningly, but you do learn everything that's wrong about them in the process. Yes. All right. Very, well, I need to. Very strange. Take, I need to take my corgi out, Spock. He's wiggling back and forth. Oh, that's what you call it. Yeah, it's like he's going to uh, drop a few boys off on the carpet, so I must <laughs> rush him out. So, for Sequel Cast 2, uh, this is Matt Bradley Shirky. Follow me on Twitter at MATWBT. Check out, uh, follow the show on Twitter at Sequel Cast 2. Uh, check us out on Facebook, look up Sequel Cast 2, and leave us a. Write a review on iTunes. Just search SequelCast2 and then leave a review on there. That'd be great. And uh, I am uh, myself, uh, William Big T Thrasher. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. And I have reached the bottom of my drink. So it's all we... ice cubes from here on down. So let's uh, let's sing a bit of the Scooby-Doo theme song. And then what should I cut in? Which cover of the theme song should I cut in? Um... I kind of I would say if you can find it, there's uh, in the late '90s there was like a Saturday Morning's Greatest Hits album where it was like top bands doing covers of uh, TV show theme songs. Uh, there's a really great Spider-Man theme song by the Ramones, a cover they do. I believe Scooby-Doo's on there. I'd recommend that one. Okay, I'll try and cut that in. So, 
Uh, I'm not looking at the lyrics, so I'll probably get this wrong. So first sequel cast two. Uh, oh, next week we're going to talk about Scooby Doo Two: Monsters Unleashed, which came out in 2004. It's currently streaming in the United States on Netflix. For sequel cast two, this is Matt, and this is Thrasher, saying, "Scooby Dooby Doo, where are you? You, you re- we got some work to do now. We're going to solve mysteries." Can't you see? Oh, look, I'm eating a cow now. That's not it. Oh, Scooby okay. Doo, we got a mystery, so baby, don't you know you don't hold back? That's a fact. And Scooby Doo, if you come through, you're gonna have yourself a Scooby snack. Oh, God, my voice. Oh, Raggy. Okay, that's it. Raggy. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I also want to end it with, um, what's your Shaggy imitation? And then we'll... <clears throat> well, gee, old Scoob, old buddy, old pal, I could sure go for a pizza right about now. Well, Scoob, I have a sausage surprise around my neck. That's terrible. Oh, boy. <laughs> I don't know what that sounds like. That's terrible. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.